0: Today on episode 500 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, generous lessons from you.
1: Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students.
0: Ah! (laughs) Congratulations, 500 episodes, a chance to have been in community, learning from each other. We're going to celebrate today, Bonnie, and talk about the lessons we've shared and had the privilege to be a part of here in our community.
1: Dave and I are filled with gratitude today for all of the ways in which people have shared how this community has helped you to laugh boldly, cry openly, show up, think deeply, think again, be humble, connect generously, and amplify voices.
0: That's a lot of stuff we're going to do in this episode
1: It's a lot. We even have sound effects. I think we need it one more time just before we do the first one. Yeah.
0: Hopefully that's coming across on the audio okay. Hopefully we also didn't cause a automobile accident for someone in their car thinking that someone behind them was trying to get in their way.
1: Not to mention, we hope that our podcast editor, Andrew Kroger, didn't just have his ears blown out.
0: Always possible. But by time you hear this, he will have fixed <laughs> yes, that. That's the beauty of it. Been... So Andrew may not have survived, yes, but the rest of yes. us will have survived.
1: This first act of generosity is a reflection from Alan Levine, who talks about the ways in which an episode helped him to laugh boldly. Here is our first of many clips, this one from Alan Levine.
2: Hi, Bonnie. It's El Levine. Happy 500th episode. That is epic. That is like many, many more 208s combined with all the good stuff. Picking one is uh, such uh, a hard thing to do, but I'm going with episode uh, 399 because I love satire. And this uh, bit that you chose to read from McSweeney's Internet Tendency which I love like so much. I love the way they write and I love satire. It reminds me as a kid how I just was so tuned into Mad Magazine. And I could actually read a satirized version of a movie in Mad Magazine and I could back out what the plot was. And so I can do that with McSweeney's too, because it is based on nuggets of truth. It's just stretched out of proportion. It makes us feel good. And you're you know, your decision to choose to do this as sort of a, a relief in hard times mixed in with all the other fantastic interviews and work that you do just makes a reason why I'm such a big fan of teaching in higher ed. I hope to be there for at least the next 500 and 500 more after that, and hope you are too. Thanks again, Bonnie.
0: Speaking of laughing, you have received more than one message over the years, Bonnie, of people enjoying your laugh. I also would add in that you have a pretty <laughs> adorable sneeze, too. If you could try to sneeze on demand. I right really now. wish
1: I could. That'd be really cool. You know what? I sneeze often with chocolate. And then usually makes me sneeze two times. It's a weird, a weird thing.
0: I don't think I knew that about you. Mm-hmm. doesn't See, happen every learning, time, but it's, it's... Generous lessons we're learning about each Look
1: other right
0: now. Look at that. Uh, so speaking of laughs, there's a memorable laugh from an episode with... Mike Caulfield.
1: Yes. And in the beginning of this clip, we're going to be playing a short bit of This American Life so that what we have to say about it makes sense. So here's a clip from This American Life, followed by Mike Caulfield and I responding to it.
2: Rebecca remembers exactly when she learned the astonishing truth. She was in second grade and ran into her best friend, Rachel, at school one day.
0: And she pulled me aside and and said, you know, last night, you know, I lost a tooth and I woke up while the tooth fairy was putting the money under my pillow, and guess who the tooth fairy was? I said, oh my god, who was it? I I have to know. And she said, my dad. My dad is the tooth fairy. And I remember running home after school and telling my mom, mom, I know who the tooth fairy is, and declaring it as if I had grown up, that I I knew who, who the tooth fairy was. And she said, oh, well, who is the tooth fairy? And I turned to her and I said,
1: Rachel's dad is the tooth fairy. Ronnie Loberfeld is the tooth fairy. That's just the beginning. You've got to go to listen to more of it. It's a wonderful episode of kids who have misunderstood things. And I will admit that I tend to play it pretty safe on this show. I don't say a lot of controversial things, but here goes. Just here's my warning my husband and I do not plan on telling our children that there is such a thing as a tooth fairy. And I apologize if that offends you. But it's one of those things that we like to think about with our kids that when we tell them things like this, and again, we're not going to judge any of you who that's your thing. But for us, we just, we want to sort of contribute to their own literacy and thinking. And I'm having fun with my son who's four and a half now just talking to him about what is real and what is imagined and what is symbolic and just trying to teach him what those things mean. And he's pretty darn good at discerning those things at a young age. And I think one of the things is that we just watch out to any parts that we as parents might be doing to contribute to that. But anyway, even if you don't agree and you want to tell your kids that there's such a thing as a tooth fairy... In this world, it's still a really fun episode to listen to. And I just found myself smiling so much that my cheeks hurt. So that's my recommendation for today. And I'm going to pass it over to you, Mike.
3: Well, I, you know, the, the tooth fairy thing, I don't remember being shocked finding out my parents were, were the tooth fairy. I remember being shocked that my my mom had kept all the teeth. They were like, <laughs> in like a little jar. And like, so... <laughs> So this just seemed to me, this was like, I don't know, this seemed like Roman or something, mm-hmm. just like a jar of teeth. But, you know, her, her feeling was, well, it just seemed weird to throw them away. And it was like, well, you know, I, I, you know, the Tooth Fairy thing, the fact you guys are the Tooth Fairy, that's not freaking me out. No, the, the jar, the jar of baby <laughs> teeth in our cupboard,
1: though, that's, that's a little, that's a little Dahmer. So, uh,
3: you know, might might want to back off of that.
1: It's funny that you bring that up because, of course, it's always as a parent, you're thinking about things in advance often of when they actually happen. But this is something I didn't even think about. What do you do with those? Yeah, teeth? what do you
3: do with the do with the teeth?
1: Yeah, <laughs>
3: Yeah, so in any case, yeah, but for, for folks out there, whether you, whether you engage in tooth fairyism or not, you know, that's great. But don't keep a jar of teeth in the medic- medicine cabinet. That's just freaky.
1: My parents do search and rescue with their dogs. And I'm uh, laughing because as I'm saying this to you, I'm realizing what you do with them is you give them to your parents because they use them as scent articles for the dogs as they go. to find oh, no. so, Yeah, that's what oh, you that's do with rim. the teeth. I know it's really, <laughs> they, it's, this is another embarrassing confession, then I'll stop. Um, for Easter many years, I wouldn't see my parents because they would be doing cadaver Easter egg hunts with the dogs. <laughs> no. There's a synthetic oh. scent for dead body smell, and they'd put it inside Easter eggs, and the dogs would go find them.
3: Oh, <laughs> my strange. gosh. I'm wow. wondering you know, if I, our... feel, I feel like believing in the tooth fairy was not the worst of your childhood issues.
1: <laughs> yes,
3: perhaps. <laughs> I think, perhaps. I think there's a whole other universe <laughs> of things to work out.
0: Oh, we've had all kinds of fun along the way, Bonnie. I think about just actually a day or two ago, we had a lost tooth in our house, and now we got our systems down. We know they go to Grandma for sent articles. Speaking of laughing, let's go to the other side. Crying one of the things that's come up on the show before, and I think a great introduction to this, Bonnie, is our daughter did a bit on my podcast many years ago. She's much older now, but we had a conversation about her opening an episode about reducing drama with kids, and she had some words about crying. Hey, Hannah, how old are you right now?
2: Three.
0: What is it like to be Three.
2: Um, you need help for mommy and daddy.
0: You do need help for mommy and daddy, don't you? Yes. What's the best part of being three?
2: Um, putting on pajamas. Oh, I love that part.
0: Wait, what's the worst part of being three?
2: Crying.
0: Oh, you don't like crying? No. Oh, me neither. So I have a question for you. What? But- what's something we've taught you?
2: Um, do podcast by myself.
0: How to do a podcast by yourself? Yes. It's funny, I don't remember that, but this is related to that. Oh. Today, we're going to do an episode. We're going to teach parents how to be better teachers and leaders for their kids. What do you think about that? Then. So, we have to tell them what it is. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, here's what to say. What? Say, this is coaching for leaders.
2: This is thirteen for readers
0: episode three hundred ten
2: This is hundred and
0: ten yay She still remembers that conversation, and in fact, ironically, not knowing we were going to be recording this today, Bonnie asked me if I would play that for her last night now that she's what six, seven years older than she was mm. when that happened, and you know I think about crying, it's of course something she <laughs> remembers of being tough about being three, I'd say she still would say that's a tough thing about life. And it's also hard for those of us who are a bit older than that, too.
1: The next clip we're going to hear, I have heard from more people about over email than perhaps any other moment in teaching in higher ed history. And I think it's just because it strikes people's hearts that you know it can be so, so painful to get those course evaluations. And actually, we had a last-minute scheduling change for one of the episodes, and I just came to you casually and said, hey, why don't we just talk about how, to, how I go through... Course evaluations is the process that I use, and I had no idea the kind of emotion that this particular comment would evoke in me, and you had been asking me, through the process I go through with course evaluations, the part about what is confusing or I had questions about or something that disappointed me. And this was one part of my answer to that question. "Oh my gosh, this next one. I'll read it word for word. The only thing that disappointed me is that for the poster sessions, you didn't walk around and look at everyone's posters. I know we all spent money on materials and put time into them and would have liked you to at least see it in person. This one's so hard. So I had combined both of the sections of the classes together, Mm -hmm. and we put on an awesome event. We had, I think, almost 100 people there. And there were alumni coming and there were business professionals coming. We did a Facebook live thing that I blogged about Mm -hmm. that like went crazy bad and (laughs) to post about all my Facebook live failures. Because it
0: was (laughs) was 90 degree (laughs) angle the wrong way.
1: (laughs) Yeah. But I just, I saw this and I was so sad. I was so sad because I thought I watched the whole video and I was so proud of all of you. I smiled from ear to ear as I watched every single clip of that video on, on its side. <laughs> 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 and I did it in private. Mm. And that they wouldn't have known that I would have put that much effort into celebrating their learning made me so sad. Mm. So sad. And then especially talking about them spending money. And I know some of our students just don't have a lot of money and that they wouldn't have known that I treasured that. Mm. We had a student who's a professional photographer. She took these amazing pictures. And I just smiled ear to ear at just celebrating their learning. But I wasn't purposeful enough about getting to every single booth. I don't even know if that would have been possible because there were so many of them. And the event wasn't really that long. So I just have to think about this for next time. Mm. Of I never want to read that on a comment again. It still makes me so sad. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The next lesson is about showing up. And before I get to it, though, I I just wanted to sort of preview an episode. I invited Karen Costet to come back and talk about. I saw she wrote a chapter for a book about an educator's scope of practice how do i know what's mine and it's in a book about trauma informed teaching and it just reminds me actually i to get that clip timed right dave i went back and listened to the parts just before this section and it was like that's really sad too i mean it was kind of a really sad episode overall it just so much when you care so deeply when you want to have that care show up in ways that are healthy, the part before it, I had completely forgotten about it, but was just how triggering I find this idea that I'm too nice. Because a person had broken up with me and then I didn't get closure out of that relationship. And then he decides to tell someone years later that he broke up with me because I was too nice. And I don't know if you remember that conversation where we both ultimately decided how nice it is because you also had someone give you feedback, an old girlfriend give you feedback. So, you know, if uh, anyone's ever told anyone listening out there that you're too nice, I got to tell you, being married to someone who is also, quote unquote, too nice is a really wonderful way to go through life. But uh, it's pretty nice,
0: you know. Oh, it's so,
1: so nice. The next lesson that has arisen so often in all of these conversations I've been able to have all these years has to do with showing up and what an honor it was to speak with Clint Smith way back on episode 141. And early in the episode, he speaks about his book of poems and then so graciously reads one of them for us
4: the book is sort of I tell people that it is wrestling with what is the the marathon of cognitive dissonance that it is to grow up as a young black person in this country and how does one reconcile that ever-present tension between growing up in a home in which you feel loved, affirmed and celebrated and then going out into a world in which you are constantly rendered a caricature of fear uh, and how does one hold those sort of complicated dualities at once and recognize that neither is singularly definitive of of one's experience, but both are important, both the, the joy that that a community experiences and the violence that it is subjected to. Uh, and so the book is kind of moving back and forth between those spaces. And so I'll read a poem from the book called What the Cicada Said to the Black Boy. It's a one of several poems in which I have these sort of uh, non-human or non-living or inanimate objects speaking to black boys in the same vein that my parents did, right? And so part of what I'm thinking about in the book is the ways in which black parents have to categorically different, raise their children in different ways than than their white counterparts in an effort to make sure that their children are safe. And for me, I grew up in a very mixed race, mixed income community. I had black friends, white friends, Asian friends. It was wonderful. It was like the Disney Channel. And my dad would always say, I really appreciate and love that you have such a diverse group of friends. I love that you have such a beautifully reflective community of, of the American tapestry. But part of what you have to understand is that the implications for the decisions that you make might be very different for you than they are for your other friends. When you're a kid, you don't understand that. You're just kind of like, you're the mean dad, you're the strict dad. Why can't you be more like Tommy's dad? And it's not until something like Tamir Rice happens, the young boy who was killed, the 12 year old boy who was killed in Cleveland, Ohio, for playing with a toy gun in a park in an open carry state, when no one else was around him. So obviously layers and layers of, of issues of that case. And that's all to say that I, I was thinking a lot about the the fear that, that black parents sort of carry with them and and then the ways in which that fear shapes the sort of pedagogy of their parenting. And so as a sort of artistic endeavor, I imagine what these other objects might say in, in the sort of proverbial talk to young black boys. And this is one of those poems. What the cicada said to the black boy. I've seen what they make of you, how they render you a multiplicity of mistakes. They have undone me as well, pulled back my shell and feasted on my flesh, claimed it was for their survival. And they wonder why I only show my face every 17 years. But you, you're lucky if they let you live that long. I could teach you some things, you know. I've been playing this game since before you knew what breath was. This here is prehistoric. Why you think we fly? Why you think we roll in packs? You think these swarms are for the fun of it? I would tell you that you don't roll deep enough, but every time you swarm, they shoot. Get you some wings, son. Get you some wings.
1: What an honor it was to get to speak with Clint Smith. He, along with so many others, has shaped my thinking and expanded my imagination, both in terms of filling it with hope and also filling it with understandable horror at the history and current reality in our country. And he also mentioned in that interview about a pedagogy of parenting. And Dave, that just got me thinking about you, and I hadn't really remembered that phrase coming together. I'm very grateful for you, Dave, and our collective pedagogy of parenting. I'm also reflecting, as I listen back on his interview on my gratitude toward the librarians and the teachers at our kids' school and for the ways in which each of you are shaping our kids' lives in an attempt to reconcile our own positionality with where so many other people find themselves in this world.
0: Thank you for the kind words. And as I think about that clip earlier about the tooth fairy, speaking of thinking deeply, You changed my thinking on this, both on the Tooth Fairy and on Santa Claus and a few other things of like, what does reality look like? What does fiction look like? And like, how do you have those conversations with kids? And I would have gone down a very different route as a parent if you hadn't helped me to think critically about those. And I'm so grateful for that, especially looking at how our kids now have emerged. I mean, they're always emerging, as are all of us, but now- Late in elementary school, getting into middle school, and how they view and think about and shape the world, it's really, really cool. And if we go a step further on thinking deeply, so many of the conversations that you've had have helped all of us think deeply. I love listening to the your episodes, even though I'm not a teacher in a traditional sense. I'm teaching all the time and the work I do with our members, and so I'm always exploring and thinking about new topics that you bring up and Derek Bruff reached out and shared about an episode with
5: Betsy Berry about course evaluations that also got him thinking. Hi Bonnie, this is Derek Bruff, host of The Intentional Teaching podcast and a former podcast guest on Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm sending in a big congratulations on your 500th episode. As a fellow podcaster, I know how much work it is to put on a show like this, and hitting 500 episodes is just really remarkable and a real gift to the higher education teaching community. For my episode that still resonates, I'm going to go way back to February 2016. You talked with Betsy Berry in episode 89. She had done a deep dive into the research on student course evaluations, and you had her on to talk about that research. And she did such an amazing job of presenting a really complex, subject. Um, There's lots of conflicting messages in that research, and she did such a great job of distilling that into something practical and useful, but still representative of the complexity of the topic. That episode came out shortly before we launched our old Leading Lines podcast, and I think it did a lot to inform me as to how we could treat hard and complex topics with care and nuance in our podcast. And so thank you for giving us that episode and giving us the gift of your podcast. Congrats!
1: Derek, thank you for the kind words. And I so concur with the ways in which Betsy Berry gets us to think deeply about things. When she came on to talk about the course workload estimator, boy, that episode went into so many other things that I had never anticipated coming up in that type of a conversation. I once was able to be on a panel with her for Inside Higher Ed talking about high flex learning. And each and every time I've ever had an opportunity to have a conversation with her, she's getting me to think so deeply. She really is emblematic of this this thing that teaching in higher ed has done for so many of us over all of these years. A similar note, Mahabali called in to share about the ways in which a former guest, someone who she's actually collaborated with previously, got her
6: to think again. I'm Mahabali, episode number 475. This episode resonated with me so much. The person who was on the episode was Mia Zamora, who is a frequent co-author with me. And we've written a lot together on intentionally equitable hospitality. And amazingly, while listening to that episode, she talks about stuff that we've been writing together. And I realized that she actually had a slightly different perspective on one of the things that we were working on than I had beforehand. So one of the dimensions or the phases of intentionally equitable hospitality is sustaining community beyond the moment. And what I usually mean when I say sustaining community beyond the moment is I'm thinking about professional development of adults. And it's talking about how virtually connecting, which was connected to conferences, required us to sustain community between one conference and another through things like Slack and Twitter and personal communication and so on. Whereas me as understanding of it was how do you sustain community After a class is over. So, a course in a semester in a university is over. And she's also the director of a master's program. So, she was thinking about sustaining community within the master's program and beyond the master's program. So, her interpretation of this term that we both use very often was quite different from mine. So, I learned from the episode things that for some reason had not come up in conversation between us.
0: Bonnie, there's an element of humility that I think shows up for. Both of us, I don't know. I feel like it shows up more and more for me over the years of hosting a podcast. Like I realize how much I don't know. And sometimes we discover that in the moment, and sometimes we find that out afterwards. And uh, Rob Eaton has uh, a few words about sharing a time that you made a mistake and how he felt about it.
7: Bonnie, this is Rob Eaton. And I hope it's all right that the moment I choose is from a podcast episode I was on was the second time you had Bonnie Moon and me on. And you were sharing an insight from someone who had written a book and said, he's an astrologer. And then you said, oh my gosh, I can't remember. And then I jumped in with astronomist, which is not even a word. I meant astronomer. And we went off on a tangent about vulnerability. And uh, I, I urged you, I made my pitch to keep this bit in. And you did, to your tremendous credit. It was a great example of how vulnerable and authentic and real you are as a host. And it's that authenticity that gets your guests to open up and communicate with you in a different way that I think is the hallmark of success of your show. In the process, incidentally, you model for all of us teachers how we can do the same thing in our classrooms, show our students that it's all right to make mistakes and to be real, and in the process, make our classrooms a safe place for learning. Congratulations on 500 episodes of a fantastic podcast, and thanks for letting me be part of it.
1: As I reflect back on 500 episodes, it really is those times when I've allowed an edit not to drop on the editing floor as the expression goes. I think back to the conversation I was able to have with Ken Bain, and Ken Bain, his book was the first book that I ever read about teaching in a higher education context specifically I was so nervous to talk to that man and just, uh, I mean, he also, I found out later, I don't know if nervous would be the right word, but he wasn't as familiar with podcasting as a platform. So he mentioned that, oh, he had actually wanted to say something. And I was thinking, hey, this isn't like radio. We could actually add that back in. And so he started saying all these names that now today are so familiar to me, but I was typing so fast at the time, it all sounded completely unknown to me. And so he said, Eric Mazur, and he talked about the Minerva Prize and how he had won half a million dollars and all this thing. And I'm thinking, okay, okay. And I'm thinking, don't tell me too many things before I press record, because I don't have good short-term memory. So I go back and I press record and I say, tell me about this manure award. Hmm. And of course, autocorrect had changed changed, I think, Minerva to Manure or Missure to Manure. That sounds more like it. But nonetheless, out of that came a way of celebrating public failures. And on episode 100, we gave away the Manure Award, which coincidentally went to Mahabali, who shared just a couple stories ago. <laughs> Spoiler alert, if you go back and listen to that episode, you already know who won. But um, yes, the generosity with which people have been willing to share failures and struggles has been so overwhelming. And another way in which I have just felt overwhelmed is the ways in which people have helped to connect generously. And I would say, I don't like to pick a most, because there's always <laughs> there's always like when you like picking a favorite, it's impossible. But um a person who has truly Changed my life, and I do not say that as any sort of an exaggeration, is James Lang. And I invited him to call and share a reflection on an episode, and he did even more than that. This is James Lang.
0: Congratulations, Bonnie, on your 500th episode. Um, I have been on the guest on the podcast, I think, six times now. So it's hard for me to identify a particular episode. But I will say what I've said in print and
7: to many other people, um, you've done an incredible service to the profession by having so many incredible guests on the show. And in every role I occupy professionally as a teacher, a faculty developer, a writer, an editor, and just as someone who has to get work done every day, I have learned from you and for your guests uh, and from the, the people, the conversations and the resources they've shared and all the ideas that sort of come out of the conversations that you sort of direct
0: so artfully. So congratulations on your 500th episode, and I look forward
7: to 500 more.
1: Jim, I got to first speak with you back in 2014, and... I cannot begin to tell you the ways in which the people that you connected me with, your books, the times I wrote to you and asked for advice confidentially, uh, what a difference this has made. And just to hear your words to say that anything I would have done would have helped you learn is truly uh, staggering to me. And I think it truly comes out of the early generosity you provided, not just to me, but I mean, you just provide so generously to this community. You make higher education better and thank you for the ways in which you've done that for the students I'm privileged to serve and so many students from around the world and thank you for taking time out of the day to just share that that so thoughtful message that I'm going to treasure forever.
0: I think I've lost count Bonnie of how many times I've heard Jim's name in conversations we have had around the house and in professional contexts and personal ones too over the years. Thank you, Jim. And he certainly helped connect so many people in this community. And Bonnie, you've done the same too for lots of people. And uh, I think this is a really wonderful message from Karen Caldwell, uh, sharing her experience listening to an episode.
8: I'm Karen Caldwell. And on episode 432, Top Tools for Learning, Bonnie casually mentioned my TEDx talk about a strategy I'm developing called Learning Out Loud. And folks, hearing my name, spoken by Bonnie Stachowiak and learning that she had used my talk in a PD session with new faculty remains a big, big turning point for me as an educator. And it literally made me cry on the spot. And I know that's a selfish reason for choosing an episode, but it comes from my heart and it speaks volumes to why Bonnie is such a phenomenal person. So bonnie yes has uh recorded 500 podcasts and she's done so much more than that incredible feat and she's she's this unique combination of knowledge of higher education teaching and learning and skills for organizing our lives and living a balanced life and most of all what speaks volumes to me is her openness and generosity that she demonstrates in her podcast interviews but also behind the scenes she has answered probably two or three emails of mine in the past from my life overseas where I really needed a lifeline and she provided really helpful information and has just been so generous to someone that she didn't know. And for me to hear her mention my name that casually uh, just meant the world to me. So a big congratulations, Bonnie. You're an amazing person and we all love you very much.
1: Karen's message cracks me up. She knows this But I I thought there were two Karen Caldwells. There was the Karen Caldwell who would reach out and ask me for help or advice. And then there was the one that was really, really famous, who I would hope someday would be willing to come on my show. (laughs) And when I found out it was (laughs) the same person, I was like, what is happening?
0: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I don't think I knew that.
1: Yeah, there are not. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of Karen Caldwells, but in terms of this universe, um, there was just one. That's so
0: funny. Thank you, Karen. What a gracious and generous message.
1: All right. So Dave and I are going to be taking a brief break. You won't even know that we took a break because through the magic of podcasting, this will get edited out. But we are about to have our two kids join us for today's recommendations segment to help us celebrate 500 episodes of Teaching in Higher Ed. We'll be right back. This is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And I believe first, Luke would like to celebrate something.
9: <sighs> Congratulations on 500 episodes. OK,
1: Luke, and I understand that you have a book that you would like to recommend today. What is the name of the book?
9: Yes, the book is called The Bitter Side of Sweet. And how
1: did you first hear about this book?
9: I found out about this book. I'm in sixth grade and my reading teacher told it to me and Uh, I really liked it. And you really liked it. And how,
1: where, where does this book take place? What do do we know about the character? Is it fiction? How many questions
9: can I ask you at once? (laughs) (laughs) This book is realistic fiction and I'm not sure where it takes place. Oh, okay. And what's happening with some of the characters? They get taken to these cocoa farms where they're forced to get the cocoa seeds from trees and climb and take them off. And it's actually really dangerous, but they still do it.
1: Yes. And so it's a, it's a realistic fiction. And what is it realistically showing the readers? What what kind of both it's both a crime and a, also a a bad thing that happens in terms of human rights. What is it conveying?
9: Child slavery.
1: Yes. Yes. So is it all where you feel like crying every single page or are there other kinds of feelings that you have when you're reading the book?
9: There are other feelings, um, especially when they get good food, like when they get a good harvest for the day, they get rewarded.
1: Ah, and uh, so you would recommend it. What what kind of people do you think would, would enjoy reading a book like this? I
9: think the people who would like reading this book is people who like a lot of action in books because there's a lot of action in this book. Okay.
1: I remember you told me you thought I would like it too. Yeah. And it's one that I need to put on the list so I don't forget about it because it sounded really important to read and one that would catch my attention and teach me a lot too. Mm-hmm. Thanks for coming and helping me celebrate episode 500,
9: Luke. You're welcome.
1: Hannah has now joined us, and Hannah, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Hi. I didn't tell you this in advance, but we actually played a clip from Daddy's podcast from when you were three. You remember that one? Because even though that didn't happen on my podcast, it's still one of my favorite family podcasting moments we've ever had. And here you are all these years later, and now you have a book that you wanna recommend? What book would you like to recommend to the listening community?
9: Um, I would like to recommend From the Desk of Zoe Washington. And what can you tell people about
1: this book? What kind of book is it?
9: From the Desk of Zoe Washington is a realistic fiction book about a girl named Zoe Washington who's been separated from her birth dad since she's been born because her dad was accused of being in prison and she's gotten her first letter on her old 12th birthday and she's determined to and her dad says that he's innocent and she's determined to find the alibi witness to prove and free her dad from prison.
1: Yes. And there are so many things. We actually got to read this one together. Luke's book I haven't read yet. But we not only got to read this one together, we read the follow-up book, too. So I don't remember what that one was called. On Air with Zoe
9: Washington.
1: Which we had no idea, Dave. I don't even know if you know about this. The second book ends up having a podcasting theme, which is kind of funny if you think about it, because of the family that we are from. But yes, so we learn a lot in this book about prison. We learn a lot about Exoneries. Exoneries. We learn a lot about family relationships, early new businesses, about letter writing and hard stuff. And oh my gosh, you know one of the parts I love about it. Do you remember what, like in his letters, what does he share with his daughter? Music. Yes, so there's a whole playlist, and Hannah and I every time would save the songs as the dad would send new song recommendations, and as the young people say today, the music really slaps. (laughs) Oh, I wish people could see Hannah's face. Did I use that expression well? I didn't understand what it meant. Oh, well, then that means I'm not quite as hip on the lingo as today. I think it means it's good music. Good, good music. That's not people don't say that anymore. No. no. Okay, I'll work on it. Hannah, is there anything else you want to tell people about the book? Um, no. Thank you for coming back and helping me celebrate 500 years, 500 years, <laughs> or 500 episodes of Teaching at Higher Ed. <laughs> Thanks, Hannah. For both Andrew's sake and for anyone who has been listening and disturbed by the noisemakers, that will be the last time this episode contains any noisemaking, correct, Dave?
0: Unless I go off the deep end here in just a few moments. You never know.
1: You never know.
0: Very unpredictable. So we can't promise
1: that, I guess. Dave, my ears are still ringing. (laughs) I understand that you also have a book that you would like to recommend. We are in a book kind of a of a theme today.
0: We are. And I can't believe, by the way, she did that off the top of her head. It, I was listening and I was thinking, it almost sounds like she's reading something, but she's just, it's incredible how much she took in from that book. And I have a related book recommendation, thinking about parenting and also thinking about that clip that you shared earlier with her about crying all those years ago that was an introduction to an episode I aired with Tina Payne Bryson on how to reduce drama with kids. We have a friend who's a psychologist. And I, years ago, when the kids were really young, I asked him for a book recommendation on parenting. And he said, Anything by Dan Siegel or Tina Payne Bryson is a great book. And I came across the book from them no drama discipline and it is a book i still think about almost every day it shapes so much of my actions and intentions as a parent and it's fascinating to me how much of the research and the practices have changed from the conventional wisdom i think a lot of us knew when we were young just one example of i think almost all of us have heard the mantra of ignore a temper tantrum and Tina and Daniel in their work and their research show that, no, actually, that's not the best way to do it, actually, to help a child calm down and to help them to um, get in a place where they can hear something because they can't handle that while their brain is on overload. And it just it's just one of probably a dozen things that like really changed my thinking about parenting. And I owe so much of like the relationship we have with our kids today to her work and the The research they've done, and just how beautifully they present in the book. So if that's something that's, if you have young people in your life and you have a heart for thinking about what does that relationship look like and what does really good healthy discipline look like, No Drama Discipline by Dan Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson is a great read. And Bonnie, I'm sure, will include a link to the interview I was fortunate to do with her too.
1: Absolutely. And I will say that it completely changed my thinking as well. It is one thing to change one's thinking and another to change one's behaviors. And Dave, you are so gifted at this and so good at it. I've learned so much from you and I know I have so much more I can continue to get to learn. As I just watch you parent, you are an absolute magnificent dad and parent oh, thanks. and I learn from you every day.
0: I feel the same way about you and we i think one of the blessings of i always think of the challenges of being a single parent and how hard it is like the two of us fully aligned and working together and bringing our strengths and one of the joys of having a partner parenting is that you each get to bring your different strengths to the interactions and the energy and the frustration and all those things and i'm really grateful that we have that in our relationship.
1: I'm going to close this out today for my recommendation. I'd like to recommend the book Viral Justice, How We Grow the World We Want by Ruha Benjamin. And, of course, we didn't necessarily know what each other was going to recommend, and you hadn't heard all the clips. And isn't it amazing how all this weaves together? Ruha Benjamin shows in the book how these seemingly small things that we might do, or these decisions we might make or habits that we might Adopt can spread in similar ways to viruses and have exponentially positive effects. She shares very vulnerably about her father's death and the ways in which the chronic stresses that happening that happen from weathering racism impact communities and cultures. She also talks about the her brother's experience in the criminal justice system and the traumas experienced there and she's just so vulnerable and and wanting to demand justice and doing so with both challenging readers and also being a person of hope. She talks about the ways in which things like doulas or midwives help to keep Black mothers and babies alive and well. And uh, in the book description, they talk about her stubborn hopefulness and I think that's such a great description of what she is urging us to do those things that are necessary, those things that are transformative. And how do we build a more just? world, one full of joy and one transforming relationships and communities. I want to recommend everyone pick up Viral Justice, How We Grow the World We Want. I know it's been recommended by at least one other person on the show, and I I read it and highly recommend it to listeners and just want to thank everybody for listening. And Dave, thank you for celebrating 100, I keep saying 100 years 10,000 Years, that's a, another song. Um, today's episode was produced by me, Bonnie Stehoviak. It was edited by the ever-talented Andrew Kroger. Podcast production support was provided by the amazing Sierra Priest. And if you have yet to sign up for my weekly emails, head over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe you won't have to remember to go to the show notes to get all these amazing links. in today's episode, a lot of amazing links, if I do say so myself. You'll also get some other goodies that don't show up on those show notes. So do that now. And I just want to say thank you to this entire community. 500 episodes. As Alan Levine said, let's do 500 more.